0: Peter Schwitzer? Oh yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's Van Clever, son of a
1: 5 four. We're online, the hottest internet station.
2: It's time for the Switzer show with the
0: guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Schwitzer.
2: Hi, and welcome to the Switzer Show. Yep, I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. How are you going, Paul? I'm great
3: this um, Monday, I think it is, Peter. No, I'm really good. Um, interesting story on the weekend. I think we're going to get to talking about it in the tick.
2: Yeah, we sure are. Look, I think there are a number of very interesting stories over the weekend. Uh, one is particularly the self managed super fund change. Now six people can mm, join. So we should talk about that a bit later. Plus yep. family problems when you, when you say you can't join because you're the fifth kid in the family. Um, but, look, the kick off the show, I've got Bernard Salt. Now, Bernard would be arguably the best demographer in Australia. Um, he will probably tell me there, there are people who are better than him because he's a very modest kind of guy.
3: He's probably the first person to make demography, I was going to say sexy, but interesting because of his column in The, uh, uh, in the Australian, I think, yeah. and many others. Yeah, um,
2: precisely. And he also... Um, went viral and probably feral when he started bagging young people over avocados, which he wants to actually clear up. He didn't actually do that. Anyway, let's get Bernard in line. We do have a few other stories we're looking at, particularly young people and having problems with their credit. But let's kick off the show with Bernard Salt. Bernard, thanks for joining us. Hi Peter. Hi guys. <laughs> Look, I, you might have heard me introduce you in terms of your your famous avocado um, story. I'm going to hold that for, for a second, Bernard. And we'll keep our listeners on on edge until we actually find out who in the hell is Bernard Salt and how did you get come about making demography actually so interesting that my daughter-in-law actually, when we met you in a in a restaurant in Melbourne, said, "Is that Bernard Salt?" Is that? I said, "Yes, it is." And he's quite normal, Bernard. Welcome to the show, and let's kick off by finding out where did Bernard Salt come from.
0: Well, um, I uh, I was like trained for being a failed history and geography school teacher.
2: I trained as a teacher,
0: never actually taught. Went on at university, did a master's degree in uh, uh, in history and geography. Fell into business consulting, and found a natural aptitude in citing numbers and interpreting. Uh, Australian culture, I suppose, that, uh, that's my forte, and have gone on to speaking, writing books and uh, uh, writing for the Australian and um, effectively presenting, I'm a, I'm a corporate speaker these days, yeah. uh, and uh, doing all sorts of bits and pieces, making it up as I go along, basically.
2: But, but Bernard, look, that's interesting in its own right, and you know, talking about another, as someone who also went over the wall and escaped teaching as a younger man. That's all very interesting, but people listening to, to the, you say what you, you, you did to create the Bernard Salt legend, they want to know how you actually got to impress, well, KPMG, it was, I, that's when I first met you, and then later on, newspapers. Like it, People don't ring you up and say, hey, come, come and write for us. You must have done something <laughs> to jump up and down. People say, hey, that guy's worth giving a go.
0: Uh, well, yes. Look, I um, I was actually working for a boutique consulting firm back in the mid nineteen nineties, and then made the move uh, across to the to the big four. Um, I suppose I just uh, pitched. Uh, I, I remember the uh, the managing partner who interviewed me he said uh, he's never interviewed anyone who interviewed as well as I did. Apparently. It uh, might be the, uh, the gift of the gap that got me across the line. But I will also say that you do need to work hard. You, it, you you do need to be at it all the time. I write two columns a week. I speak more than 100 times a year. Uh, you know, it's very, very constant. So it's not as if it is just gifted to you. I feel as though you actually have to work at work every week consistently to produce insight and observation. Mm.
3: Bernard, um, the reason for uh, calling you today, apart from to find out about, uh, ask you about the avocados, but let's come back to that, <laughs> is of course we're coming into um, budget uh, season, of course budget Tuesday week and lots of discussion now about tax and the proportion of uh, tax and who should pay more or get bigger tax cuts. You've come up with some very interesting data about the, just what the share of uh, taxation is across Australia and who's actually paying tax.
0: Well, yes, I um, I see my area of expertise as in demography. Now, that can be uh, census data. And on this occasion, I've looked at uh, data, publicly available data from the ATO, the, the Taxation Office, and it publishes how many people are in each tax bracket. And what it shows is that three years ago, there were 400,000 people in the uppermost income bracket, earning $180,000 per year. Mm-hmm. So you could say... There's 400,000 rich people in Australia, as as defined. They represent three percent of all taxpayers, and they pay 30 percent of the income tax that's collected. So three percent of people pay 30 percent of the income tax take. Now the reason why that occurs is because of our progressive taxation system. That's 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 how we manage. Uh, society. Uh, but my point is that 400,000, it's probably close to 500,000 people today, uh, are in the uppermost income bracket and they're paying uh, tax and contributing 30% of the income tax. I'm sure there are people that uh, are not paying the full amount and so forth, but I think just as putting those numbers out there, I, I came to the conclusion that I think that there is a group in society that I would call the ethically rich. Mm -hmm. These are people that are in the top income bracket that pay all that is due, probably, hopefully also make a contribution in volunteering, but hopefully also employ people and make a contribution. There is a a group out there that actually pay up and do the right thing. I just thought it was worthwhile um, measuring that group and acknowledging that group.
2: Yeah, and I guess it comes at a time when it seems apparent that (coughs) the Labor Party... Often is using the the rich people argument on many of their policies, and what you're really trying to do is actually graphically portray who might be in this group called rich people, and in actual fact they aren't sort of uh, under underpaying on their tax
0: well um in fact I'm sure that there are people you know right across the spectrum that are not quite doing the right thing, and hopefully they are <laughs> they brought brought to heel, but uh, the point is that uh, you can actually measure $400,000 3 years ago, probably 500000 today, that are, in fact, doing the right thing. I think the other thing to note is that everyone over $180,000 is in the same boat. So if you're earning $181,000, you are in the same boat as some of the billionaires uh, in Australia, all rich people. So I suppose, that, again, it was just trying to provide some greater... Understanding of the numbers around that, and uh, you know, it's it's not it's not wrong that three percent pay thirty percent tax. That's just a reflection of our progressive taxation system. That's the system. But I think those that do pay, I think we need to understand that that many people actually do do the right thing, which is terrific. Yeah.
3: And, and so, do you um? You're saying you don't think it's it's wrong per se, but do you think that one hundred eighty thousand tax Bracket is too low. I mean, it hasn't been moved for many, many years. Uh, it once used to be just the super rich who paid tax at the top marginal rate. But when you say that there's four hundred, perhaps five hundred thousand Australians now in the highest uh, tax bracket, that's a that's a lot of. You know, they're not all super rich, as you say. Do you think that it's time that that 180,000 bracket was moved up?
0: Well, look. I suppose if you if you do look at the brackets over time that they do push out uh, as um, inflation applies even at a modest rate that over time the 180,000 might not be seen as uh as sufficiently high but again i suppose that's a that's a decision for the politicians and the and the tax office but it wouldn't surprise me if at some point down the track uh that there was a new bracket created somewhere above the 180 figure
2: okay bernard so that's your your take on tax and it was a very interesting one i've got to say but let's go back to the area where you actually divided the generations. You created a, an international incident around your take on smashed avocado. So why don't you take us back in time to that story and tell us what you were trying to say and what the media did with what you said.
0: Well, this was a uh, column of mine in the Weekend Australian magazine from October 2016 and it was a column that was intended as a self-parody of middle-aged people and how conservative they are and finger-wagging they are when they go into a hipster cafe uh, and um, they can't read the menu because the writing is too small they can't hear themselves speak because the music is too loud they can't sit on a milk crate because that means their bottom is lower than their knees and they can't get back up again (laughs) and then they whisper to each other look at all these young people eating smashed avocado, shouldn't they be paying a saving for a house? It was all done as a parody mm. on middle age. Mm. Of course, Twitter came along two days later and just grabbed that comment. Bernard Salt said this about young people and smashed avocado. What do you reckon about that? Without the context of the entire column, seeing it was a parody, uh, it didn't look good. <laughs> that tweet went live at 6.27am on the Monday morning. By 10 a.m., I was fielding calls from the BBC in London. This thing went global, viral and feral absolutely immediately. (laughs) It made page three of the Stuttgart German newspaper. It made the newspapers in Caracas, Venezuela. And it has gone on ever since. If there is an Australian anywhere on the planet eating smashed avocado at an exotic restaurant, they'll take a photograph of it. Tag me into it, and every morning I get all these tag photos yeah. of smashed avocado across Australia. I do think that it has um, really uh, unified or fused uh, a, um, uh, a generation or has crystallized the issue of uh, affordable housing, which is uh, terrific. And I think that it's done wonders for smashed avocado. I think it's now our national dish. <laughs> it's over but, pie but, with sauce, which, mm. you know, back from the Depression. Smashed avocado with crumbled feta really speaks to the modern kind of Australia we
2: are. But Bernard, the thing that got got me about it is it is smashed avocado the kind of thing that young people are eating right around the world. Why, why would the world care unless it was something that's actually everywhere? Oh well, this is this is the point that
0: that uh, the the column came out in October two thousand and sixteen. And then, you know, it sort of rattled on for maybe six months or so. In the middle of 2017, the local 60 Minutes, Channel 9 60 Minutes, did a, um, a feature on a Melbourne property de- developer called Tim Gurner, And they asked him, can people afford to buy a house or your, one of your apartments? And he made comments to the effect that, well, no, you can't have smashed avocado and you can't have $5 copies and won't go buy for a house. That, And then it was off again the American sixty minutes picked it up, ran it, and it went right through America. So, this thing, <laughs> this issue of equating um, or, or using smashed avocado as a as a symbol, if you like, of generational division,
2: uh,
0: has gone global in um, in eighteen months.
2: All right, mate. We're we're at the end of our slot now, but before we go, you now have a business called the Demographic Group. Is that right? <laughs> that is correct. In fact.
0: I worked for twenty years mm. as a partner with TNG forming KPN Demographics mm. based out of Melbourne, which is terrific and I still have very, very close relationships with the uh, with the firm. I retired from the partnership in July of last year and effectively kept on doing what I've always been doing under my own auspices. Mm. So my PA and a lead researcher, the three of us, have grown a little bit. Mm. Uh, and um speaking writing a uh, bit of advisory, that sort of thing, all around Australia, uh, primarily um, writing through the Australian newspaper on a weekend where you'll see all of my columns and insight and uh, uh, infuriating comments about <laughs> millennials.
2: Well, I tell you what, the Avocado Growers of Australia love you like no one else, mate. Thanks very much for joining us.
0: My pleasure. Thanks. Thank you.
2: There was Bernard Salt, of course, and you can read him in The Weekend Australian. It's amazing how he's actually made something like demographics really interesting, Paul.
3: Well, he has, and of course, I think as you said, Peter, the avocado growers love mm. him. There's something Australian about eating avocado too, isn't there? We, yeah. we, we grow avocado and plentiful, don't we? Or yeah. what are the word is. So,
2: some people have in their backyards. S- well, some people do. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. And so let's go to an ad break and we'll be there, back with you in a second. And now... A word from our sponsors.
1: Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans.
2: Now, here's Switzy. Come back, and you, you might have heard my colleague, Paul Rickard, just you know, prepare me for the next segment. Paul's good like that. But Paul, <laughs> so let's just talk about something. This is radio, so you can't
3: see the expression on my face.
2: <laughs> well, look, I always say when we make a mistake, we got to be honest. You just can't hide it when the microphone's on and you're talking. But Paul, let's before we have another guest coming up, uh, Anthony Nantes from Wizard, I must have the right pronunciation for that company, but he's going to be talk- talking about People, young people and their credit scores. But before we do that, there was some breaking news on Friday around the government now allowing six people to be in a self-managed super fund, which is going to fix up people with family problems like you because you've got three daughters... And you, you can only have four until Friday, only four in your self-managed super fund. So your most despised daughter is going to be actually welcome to the self-managed super
3: fund? Yeah, I, it's exactly. I've got uh, two out of my three daughters in my self-managed <laughs> super fund. So one daughter is not, and uh, I figured that she was reasonably well catered for outside. So didn't, but did she
2: complain that she wasn't inside look, Daddy's self-managed super fund?
3: Look, not really, but I guess one day she might. <laughs> An interesting announcement from uh, Kelly O'Dwyer, who's been under a bit of pressure, and she spoke at a, a conference in Melbourne on on Friday she made sort of actually three things I think are relevant one is obviously the one you're touching on peter which is about self-managed super funds uh, and how many members they can have mm. now it's a little unclear just how the government's going to change that because it actually requires uh, legislation in a number of the states to do that because oh. uh, corporate I think it's going to be okay if you've got a corporate trustee you'll be able to have six directors but where well, you have individuals as trustee, apparently that comes under state trust law, and that's where the fall comes from, which I didn't know. So mm. it will require changes um, for some funds in the in, in set of legislation in each of the states. That actually may take a while before it uh, comes Correct. fully into effect. Yep. Uh, The second thing she um, made is a reference to SuperStream, and that's going to help self-managed super funds, particularly when they're transferring money back into uh, industry funds or out-of-industry funds or making payments, so they're going to get access to the SuperStream system. And then thirdly, I I actually looked at the transcript of her speech, uh, and she just sort of – there was one other comment at the end of it where she alluded to perhaps some other positive announcements in the budget Ah. on super. Now, I haven't seen that picked up anywhere, and – I guess given all the changes to super last year, we're probably expecting it to be pretty quiet on the super front with this budget, but maybe there's a couple of other things that are sort of coming out um, uh, that might help in the super front. And maybe, I know the government's also been talking about potentially some looking at the aged care, I won't say crisis, but some of the big issues in in aged care, particularly with dealing with people... um, Trying to live in their own homes and we might see some other steps perhaps try to free up that and make that a bit easier Mm. maybe that's how super comes into the the mixture I'm not sure but I think we'll get a couple of positive things out of next Tuesday's budget Peter
2: well given the fact that um, news poll has not been favourable to the government it's highly likely that this budget's going to be what I call a Dale Carnegie budget, how to win friends and influence people or slash voters. I think there's going to be a budget like that. And something, because poor old Kelly, she copped a terrible um, slagging after her insider's interview. Mm. She probably went back, back to the, the Treasurer and Prime Minister and said, Well, you hung me out the dry there. You didn't tell me you were going to be backing away from your policy. And uh, I need some wins on this budget. Well,
3: I think also this whole dividend imputation thing is really biting. And uh, it just takes a while for people to understand the impact. I, I think that's a real live issue. So I think what we're seeing with the government at the moment uh, is it, it, it is, uh, its its constituency is partly the older voter and, mm. and they disenfranchised some with their changes to super over the last couple of years. A lot of people really hated that stuff. Surprised me all the angst that caused, mm. given that I didn't think the changes were that big, but mm. they were obviously... People hate the rules being changed uh you know, yeah. in high, down the track. Uh, and I think this thing with Bill Shorten and his dividend imputation changes a real sleeper yeah. and that's burning out there and maybe this is part of the strategy. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think the announcements we're going to get from on Tuesday week as it, as it relates to, you know, retirement, aged care, superannuation, you know, saving, in other words, mm-hmm. taking steps to look after your and, and still be independent um, when you retire are going to be positive. Yeah. And... Um, I don't think there's going to be any any negatives out there. So,
2: and and Paul, I think there's one thing about those changes that the government introduced, um, where the cap was 1.6 million. I think there is a misconception out there that if, for example, you know you do retire and you've got a million dollars in super, and and through good investment advice and and strong stock markets, that you find that you go to 1.7 or 1.8. I think a lot of people think that they have to take 200 out and put it into you know, an alternative investment. Now, and that's
3: not right, Yeah, no, you can, ha- you can still have as much as you can get into the super system. It's, it's, it's going to be a bit hard to get money in, right. but um, you can still have as much as you want, and, and you can have more than 1.6. There's no problem about that. You just can't have more than 1.6 in the pension phase. Now, the super system is still very tax effective. It, just having normal money there is only being taxed at 15%. Yep. That's better than a tax rate of 47 or 39 or... Or, or even the lowest tax rate of 19. Yep. So super is still a good place to invest. And as provided you can get it in, you mm. can keep as much as you want in there. It's just that when you actually get to, to roll into the into the best tax rate of all, which is 0%, um, you can only have the 1.6. Okay, um, great point. So still worth, I still encourage people to look at the super system. It's still a great system.
2: Okay, so we've got Anthony Nantes on the line. Is that right? Okay, Anthony, thanks for joining us.
4: No problem,
2: I'm happy to be here. Okay, it is Nantes, is that the right pronunciation?
4: Yeah, that's right.
2: <laughs> You've had it your whole life, haven't you? It's <laughs> like I'm Schweitzer, I'm Switzer, well, I, I'm Schwitzer. I mean, it,
4: it, it's French by origin and uh, in in Europe that's would say nantes. Of course, being nonce being the capital of Brittany, yeah. but uh, typically in Australia, Nantes. I've, I've had that just for my whole life, so I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah, you, you,
2: you tend to get what I call the Ray Warren kind of pronunciation Anthony Nantes now, but also even the business you work <laughs> for is it WISA? Is that the right pronunciation? W I S R? It's Wiser. There you go, see, Wiser. Like,
4: you, you, you smarter, you, cleverer, <laughs> it's wiser.
2: You're living with a spelling anxiety everywhere you go, mate. But, okay, so we know it's wiser. Good, fantastic. So, Anthony, you guys have done a survey over 4,700 people, I think it was. And what were the, the conclusions around young people and their credit scores?
4: Yeah, so it's really interesting, actually. We, you know, what we found was that, you know, almost two-thirds of the people under 25 actually overestimated their credit worthiness. Um, and that included quite a big percentage, so sort of 10 or 12%. They were in a significantly worse position than what they actually thought they were. Um, and at the same time, on the other side of that, there's actually only about 3% of millennial borrowers who actually had a credit score better than what they actually estimated it to be. So,
2: so why are they so out of touch with their credit
4: score? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, I think um, part of, part of it is just the the rate at which they tune into their own financial literacy to begin with. I I think they're starting that journey, as as most people are at that that stage of life where where they're just starting to tune in to what the big world of finance means for them as a consumer. Uh, And and I think the second part of that is they're actually, the life stage they're at provides a bunch of disadvantages for them. There's a range of activities that they would undertake in the normal course of, of, of sort of being that age that really negatively impacts their credit score.
3: And Anthony, look, it's it's Paul Rickard here. Maybe a lot of the young people haven't had the experience of pl- applying for a loan and being knocked back yet. But look, maybe I could just sort of um, get you to sort of talk about the do's and don'ts in terms of how you actually can uh, uh, work on your credit score. Some of the things you should do to improve it and some of the things perhaps for some of our younger listeners – uh, they perhaps they shouldn't do, and in, um, in, in, which, which damages your credit score. So, what what are the things to, the positive things you can do to enhance your score?
4: Yeah, I, look, it, that that's a big question, right? I mean, I think the first thing you'd want to be saying is the first thing to absolutely do is know what your score is.
3: Right. Okay.
4: So be aware. Find, find out a way to to um, know what score is. You know, we've got our our own service, Visacredit that can help with that. Or there's other places where people can do that as well. So I think that's the first part. So be informed. But how Make difficult, sure you know how difficult is it is. to
2: do that, Anthony, to find out your credit score? Okay, you guys do it, but what happens? How, how, how does someone go about actually finding out the score?
4: Well, well, I think there's a couple of different ways. So you can use a site like like, like ours where you can mm. get a, an overview of your your, um, your score. Mm. Um, you can also approach the credit bureaus directly. You know, there's a couple of big credit bureaus in Australia and, and they um, they're compelled to provide you with a free update on your entire credit file once per year uh, for free. Mm. Um, so you can also down, go down that path. Um,
2: and, and do you guys charge for telling people their credit score?
4: No, it's completely free. Okay. And in, in fact, our side, the Wiser Credit side, is the only site in Australia that actually is a what we call kind of an aggregator of mm. credit scores because there's actually more than one credit bureau in Australia. And again, most Australians don't even know that. Most Australians have more than one score. There's actually three different credit bureaus, but two major ones. And those scores can be actually quite different because those two credit bureaus take on different information. They assess that in different information different ways, and so you know we see cases where one, an individual might have a credit score with one bureau in the 900s and um, with the other credit bureau in the 400s.
2: Mm. So Anthony, I would have thought young people would have made two big mistakes: credit cards and mobile phone um, pr- um, plans, and they've maybe not met their payments and they might have eventually caught up. But if they went, say, two or three months were not making their payments, would that have a, a severe impact on their credit score?
4: Um, that would have a severe impact, you know, if they fall behind in their payment. Um, but, I, but I think the other thing that most young people don't know, aren't aware of, is that actually any time you apply for credit, we're in about getting a credit card. That actually affects your credit score in a negative way. So if you're moving out of home, for example, and you're setting up utility bills, and maybe you're getting a new phone, and maybe you're thinking about credit, getting a credit card, so you apply it at um, uh, one or two different sites, or something that might be considered quite smart, like going and shopping around. If you're looking at a personal loan or a credit card, you actually go and hit up three or four different companies to, for an application. That actually negatively impacts your credit score and can send you quite a long way backwards.
2: God. Sounds as though it's worse than. Um, uh, are you now or have you ever been a communist? You know the old McCarthy trials in the in the fifties. So have you have you now or have you ever been a late payer of your credit card? And have you applied for too many loans? All those sort of things can go against you.
4: Well, they can, and I think there's a couple of different things to say about that. I mean, one is you know there are there are a rise of, of new companies, fintechs, who are rising and, and who are looking at. Scoring individuals' credit metrics on in a different way, in a new way, taking in more holistic data, and you know that's that's what we do at Wiser, and there's lots of others who do that well who um, maybe have a different approach to assessing someone's credit profile. And you know the other good news on the horizon, of course, is positive credit reporting, Mm. which is coming out this year, which is a you know probably a decade too late, but it's finally coming, and and that's a huge bonus, particularly for young Australians.
2: And just quickly explain what positive um, credit scores are?
4: Yeah, so the, the current credit system in Australia is a long way behind the UK and the US. It sort of went down this path, like I said, around a decade or so ago, which is in Australia, the credit bureaus only record your, the negative things you do. Um, and so the, the example that I generally give about this to a client is imagine every time you're kind of like applying for a new job, you could only ever talk about all the mistakes you've ever made in your career. Mm. Uh, no one would ever employ you. Because we've all made mistakes in our career, and if that's the only thing you could talk about, you'd never get a job anywhere. And that's kind of our current credit system. We're, what's actually, what we're moving to is the ability to actually report positive outcomes from credit. So every time you meet a month of repayment, so you take out a personal loan, and every month you've met a repayment on that for 12 months consistently, that'll actually show up as a positive outcome on your credit report, mm. and that'll be shared, and so people can see positive behaviors.
2: Well, okay, Anthony, thanks for joining us on the program.
4: No problem.
2: Hopefully it was helpful. It was, yeah. Anthony Nons or Anthony Nantes, depending on where you came from. Thanks for joining us on the program. Okay, we'll go to an ad break okay. now, and we're back in a moment. And now, a word from our sponsors.
1: Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans.
0: Too many people spend money they earned to buy things they don't want
1: to impress people that they don't like. So stick with Switzer and get rich wearing my teeth. Well, that's
2: not usually our demographic, by the way, Paul, that the bloke who's looking for his teeth, is it? Look, we,
3: yeah. Uh, yeah, we cater to all markets, Peter.
2: <laughs> okay, well, let's just go on with a couple of things that we haven't done so far. And we have got a question that's been emailed to us, and we should say, if you want to ask us a question, you can email us. and We'll use the info at switzer.com.au um, Email address, Paul? I'm not sure whether we've got a, sw- a Switzer show uh, at switzer.com.au.
3: Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get an email sorted out, Peter, here. Um, we'll certainly but, info
2: with yeah. Let's not Let's not fire about this publicly, yeah, but yeah. We'll, we'll use info until yeah. next week anyway until we get the official one uh, happening. This comes from Stephen from New, uh, New South Wales. And he's asked this interesting question, which I think, Paul, many of our uh, followers have been... Uh, you know, asking us about is it safe to buy the big four banks and he particularly is interested in Westpac right now, or do you wait? Look,
3: I, I think that's a really great question, and I guess it's probably the biggest issue in the market because if we look back what's happened in April, um, in the mar- in a month where the market actually Peter's going to add something like about three and a half to four percent one of our best single months in the ASX for a long time. Mm. Ah, uh, banks have actually gone backwards, uh, and given banks represent thirty-five percent of the market, roughly, for have sort of all the major banks to go be negative on the month, mm. uh, with perhaps one small exception, uh, and the rest of the market to go up three and a half percent is big underperformance, and that's obviously the impact of the royal commission. Now, we've got some very interesting times for banks coming up in the next six or seven days, not Royal Commission related. Mm. So uh, it kicks off on on Tuesday when the ANZ presents its half-year profit report. We've got uh, National Australia Bank on Thursday, Westpac next Monday. Uh, Due to hit sometime this week is is allegedly the APRA review into Commonwealth Bank and their governance, Mm. uh, which was commissioned outside the Royal Commission the royal commission's in in hiding for hiding or well, is it taking a breather for a couple of weeks <laughs> hiding well wrong word i did, I, I i thought a, of that a word adjournment. adjourned yeah the and uh, it'll come back and look at um small business lending i think the week after next yeah. and of course th- we'll be looking at things like bank west i guess mm. so really important week for banks given their underperformance given we've seen the royal commission go is now be adjourned for a couple of weeks uh I just wonder whether we're getting pretty close, Peter. I, I, I don't see, I don't see the, the Royal Commission as being a big ongoing risk to the banks. I think that the, um, when it comes down to it, the recommendations will make life harder. Uh, in terms for the banks, in terms of uh, being able to grow their revenue, so that's that's what we're seeing in the share price. It's not a question; that everyone thinks they're going to be fined or have to pay all
2: these or penalties. Forcefully broken up. Yeah, that's what the, Professor Fell well, suggests.
3: Yeah, but that again, that's not going to be a major drama to them because wealth management has not been profitable, yeah. particularly so profitable. Just sell it. So, and that's why they have already been selling. I mean, ANZ's already out of it. Commonwealth Bank is already selling its life insurance company. Yeah. A lot of the others. Westpac has got out of its. The investment management part out of its funds management business, C- CBA's announced the same with with the f- investment management out of Colonial First State. Mm. They're already sort of moving this direction, so the the, the vertical integration fee is not going to have a huge impact to them. Yep. Uh, nor are fines or penalties; they've already provided for that, and the, there's not the, the Royal Commission's not going to investigate lots of individual cases here. Yeah. So it's, it's that, that's not the issue. The question is, you know, w- when the Royal Commission finishes. And it says to the banks, well, look, we don't think you're going to be being very responsible lenders. So to, to write a loan going forward, you're going to have to do the, all these additional extra steps. Uh, to take on this sort of business, you're going to have to do everything, all these other th- new processes and also put the customer first and do all these other things you didn't do before. Mm-hmm. That's where they're going to find it hard and that's where people are saying they could be challenged to grow revenue. Mm-hmm. And that's why the market has come off. How much more we've got to go $64 question, but I don't think there's that much in it. So I've mm. been bullish on banks. I've been wrong mm. uh, this year. But, um, you know, you've got to buy in the in the doom and the gloom. Yeah. As, and as Buffett it's, said, it's,
2: when, when people are fear, fearful, be greedy, and when people are greedy, be fearful. Yeah, and
3: the question is, is this the end of the fear yeah. uh, or is it going to continue? And I think this week, as I said, is pretty important because uh, let's go back to CBA, for example. If, if this governance report's you know, comes out and says, look, its it's, a, it's practices are really horrific and it's going to have to do something. It might require, you know, senior management, board shake-up, whatever it is. You could go through... CBA could get really derailed for mm-hmm. some months as it addresses the yeah. APRA concerns. Uh, and I think also the, to see what sort of progress the banks have made on their cost-cutting initiatives uh, in their half-yearly numbers are important. So I think they're going to report quite well, but the market sort of a bit fearful. So um, I, I think this is probably the time to buy, but, you know, I have to admit I've been wrong, out of sync with the market, and yeah. so I'm a little hesitant to say rush in and buy now.
2: And, and there are people who would say, let's face it, CBA got to, what, $96? is nearly 100 mm. and it's down, what, 72 just,
3: just, Just, yeah, just under $72. So, and to,
2: so there's been a, a lot of punishment built in to that share price, and so... But a lot of really um, cautious but professional investors will say, when a share price is falling, let it bounce. And you might miss the first 5% of a rebound. But once you see that the rebound is believable, that might be the time to get on. Otherwise, you are speculating what the bottom is. And that bottom, as you say, could be affected in six days' time when the CBA report comes out. Maybe after that, the market will say, "Oh well, it's not as bad as we think." And that market takes off. That might be the time to get in, rather than trying to precisely get yeah, the bottom. Yeah, I, I think this is a place to be buying, mm. but I wouldn't
3: be using up all my firepower, and I wouldn't be walking away so I bought at the bottom. We're not going to buy at the bottom, mm. but I think this is sort of in buy territory. Yeah. You're going to have to wear some pain because sentiment is not going to, you know, while the Royal Commission is out there, the, the, the banks could have a good week in the sense that the profit reports are good. The APRA report on, on Commonwealth Bank is not as bad as it might have been, but we know the Royal Commission starts again in two weeks, and so <laughs> they might, you know, we might go through this whole cycle again. Uh, Westpac
2: so, is a question, Steve. One know particular about Westpac. Yeah,
3: I, I think there's not a lot of difference between them. Um, Westpac got a little harder hit last week because of the concerns about its um, its its loan book, and I think that was pretty clearly rebuffed oh, by both yeah. Westpac and what it had to say. Oh. Um, I, I have a lot of time for the UBS analyst uh, Jonathan Mott. He's one of the better banking analysts, mm. but I think UBS is sort of a bit off off the mark here. Mm. Uh, Westpac certainly has been had a much higher proportion of interest only loans and had to cut back, and that's why I have been less enthusiastic about Westpac than the other banks. Yep. That I suppose was sort of came to was evident. I mean, I, I think you're basically all right with Westpac. Um, I actually think there's very little between them. I actually like the one that's doing the toughest at the moment, which is ANZ, simply because mm. I think that they're going to, showing the most progress on costs.
2: And, and the one that seems to be getting the nicest treatment from the market is NAB. Yeah. and it, Which um, was my uh, call call. Well, <laughs> it was,
3: but let, let's just give it a bit of time. Um, and so the, it's interesting to watch the relationship between NAB and Westpac. NAB's share price is now above Westpac for the first time in many, many years. Mm. Um, and uh, it's now, there's, in terms of ch- cheapness metrics, the banks are very similar. There's yeah. very little to choose between them. So uh, I think you're okay with any of them at the moment. I probably prefer CBA and ANZ. But I'm, again, I've been a step with the market there.
2: Okay, Paul. Um, another question here. And this comes from Robert in Paddington in New South Wales. And he says, is it possible to buy a property inside a self-managed super fund and then actually live in it? We get asked that question so many times.
3: and uh, Everyone loves the idea. Everyone loves the idea. And unfortunately, the answer is no.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, no until you retire well, and you're well, zero you, Well, you can
3: potentially, uh, you can take it back out of super, yep. of course, at some stage, and then live in it. Yeah. So that's that's an option. Yeah. And you could do that. And that can actually be quite a good strategy uh, when, once you retire. Mm. And, uh but the the reason you can't do it while it's in super is because the tax office says, look, we want you to keep your super monies and your super performance absolutely separate from anything else you do, mm. and we're a bit worried. This is inverted commas that you know if if you live in it, then maybe you may not pay the full market rent, and so perhaps your super fund essentially won't get the re- the, the monies it might have had if it rented that property externally. So they've just gone for a blanket, hard and fast rule for residential property, Uh, if it's owned by your super fund, neither you nor any of your relatives or related parties, and that's got a really, really ex- a big definition. It's aunts, uncles, nephews, What about daughters. no good bo- boyfriends you know, of your daughter? Well, <laughs> daughters, certainly not. No good boyfriends, not de facto's, uh, yeah. but maybe I don't know, have to look at that carefully. <laughs> okay. They can't live at it either. Now, as I said, the only option you have is when you, uh, when you retire or when you sell, you take money out of super, mm. You can, of course, buy it back from your super fund, but yeah. that's the only way you'll ever get to live in
2: it. Uh, Paul, I, I think I've, I've come across some people who have a nice home, they have a really small super, um, and they've got an investment property which they put inside their self-managed super fund. And their plan was when they retire, they will sell their home all right, and they will try and get as much money of that into their super fund. A lot harder nowadays. A lot harder, so yeah. That means people uh, drew, drew their plan up. Um, but they then thought that they would be they'd be able to withdraw their apartment inside the self managed super fund as a lump sum, and just like you can draw cash out or you can draw draw shares out, you are entitled to do that once you're in the zero you, tax. You rate. are
3: well, uh, provided you're allowed to take money out of super. That's the only caveat. Yeah. Um, but yes, you can actually uh, effectively take a withdrawal from your self managed super fund mm-hmm. as long as you're entitled to it yeah. to do so, and it's part of your benefits. Um, and you could take it back out, and then you could live in it. So, yeah, yeah look, that, that's a reasonable strategy. Uh, again, the the challenge is now getting it into super, So, uh, and, and that's what they've got to be a bit careful of. As you say, those limits have got a little bit tighter. So, look, um, worthwhile talking to, ta- see a financial planner, see an accountant. Um, but there are some reasonable strategies still with, to do with superannuation and property.
2: Yeah, and one other final question here. This comes from Alison from Paran in uh, in Melbourne. And she said, is it true if I start a business from home that could mean I'll be up for capital gains tax when if I sell my property that I live in? Well,
3: uh, the answer is yes, yes. Mm. possibly. Um, mm. And that's, again, one of the downsides of having a home business because uh, potentially, I mean, the, the tax office uh, and the government have got a very, you know, clear-cut exemption for things that are a family home. Yep. And family yep. homes have to be occupied by families, or at least mm. a family. If you start to use your home f- for business purposes, uh, so you have a bedroom that you turn into a study and you turn into a home office mm. and you start to claim tax deductions, well...
2: And intra- part of your interest repayments yeah,
3: too. and part of your interest repayments. So that, um, that unfortunately then changes the status of that property. So it's not solely a family home, mm. And effectively, um, from the date you do that, then part of that capital gain um, you make could be taxable, and it'll be taxable in proportions between the sort of the amount of the house that was used as your family home and the amount of your house that was used for business purposes mm,
2: yeah and a lot of people are totally unaware of that yeah I wonder how the how the ATO actually checks up on that that's sure. um,
3: that's a good question Peter and I guess uh, look I, I think you'd be surprised the ATO is getting very smart at this because mm. they now get I think you're probably right a couple of years ago they probably didn't and maybe mm. they still don't but they're getting very smart at matching data mm. and uh Probably what's going to tip them off is if you start to claim deductions <laughs> of home office expense yeah. in, 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 your, in your personal home, they're probably then going to realise, well, hang on, this is actually being mm. used as your family home too and they can match the two together. So yeah. they're now getting that data from, uh, you know, and, and, and under law, you know, all the banks, every company that pays a dividend, uh, land titles, office, everyone has to supply this data to the ATO. So mm. it's not as though they're just... That data is private. Yeah. <laughs> that data is available to the tax office. And as their computers get better and they invest more in, in data matching, their capability to work these things out is improving. So, look, it's a it's a taxpayer beware. It's up to you to declare what the tax treatment is. And, um, you know, it can all work go pretty well for many years. But if you get audited, just bear in mind, the ATO's a lot smarter than they used to be, I mm. think.
2: Uh, I, I would say probably one of the better strategies someone should should think about is maybe if they are going to work from home and have a serious business work from home, maybe even get a granny flat built. So that thing becomes totally separate from the rest of the house. And then, then you'd always know that the 120 grand you spent was all around the business. It may well qualify as a fit out, yeah, I guess it would be capital.
3: Look, there, there, there are, there are, I know people who've got home home offices and you you go to past their home and you see the sign out no. the front and, and they're, they're accountants and there's reasons for it. So, yeah. you know, there are reasons from just from the deductibility of things like rates and electricity and other uh, expenses about maintaining a home. Yeah. So I think if you're going to go down that path, uh, before you do it, talk to an accountant first and make sure you really understand uh, yeah. what the pros and cons are. Not from a working perspective, but from a financial and taxation perspective.
2: Okay. Well, that's the show for this week, Paul. We should say to everyone listening out there, and thank you for listening, that if you want to uh, answer, uh, get us to answer your question, just email us. As I say, the email address we'll use for this week is info at switzer.com.au. Info
3: at switzer.com.au. That's a great address. And we'll
2: bring your question to air next week. Exactly. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. That's The Switzer Show. See you and talk to you next week.
1: so long farewell i'll be just saying good night i hate to go and leave this pretty sight